0: Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood, and overlaid them with gold, and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends the cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit, and its breadth was a cubit. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He made the holy anointing oil also, and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning, Fiddle Church. It's good to be back with you. Uh, my youngest daughter and I, Gracie, were um, traveling through Europe to visit our European partners the last three Sundays. I preached at a different church each Sunday, and then we got to visit with our church planters on the ground, and just really encouraged. I just want you to know you guys are known for your generosity um, as we travel around, and there are buildings that People can now, churches can now meet in. There are pastors who don't have to work two jobs. There are churches that are in existence today because you have been generous. And I just wanna thank you on their behalf and let you know how encouraging it was even that we would go over there and sort of see them on their turf. And always, you always wonder about that. But boy, over and over again, just the, the words that came back were thank you. Thanks for coming coming to us and seeing what's going on here. And we hope even in the fall to have some of them come over here where you'll get to meet them. But because of your generosity, we, uh, they're, they're being supported, they're being helped, and uh, it was a great encouragement to them. But it's really great to be back. And I have to tell you, there's no church I'd rather be in on a Sunday than with you guys. Um, and so just, just thrilled to finally see your faces uh, again. Um, I understand we have some new junior hires in the room. Today was Promotion Sunday. And uh, so a lot of kids are moving up to the next grade. And so junior hires, welcome to you. We're really glad, uh, sixth graders, to have you in the room with us, and um, I hope you got your sort of sermon guide at the beginning. Uh, if you don't have one of those, then you can go out in the back there, and um, and somebody will show you where you could grab one of those so you can follow along. And if you're online uh, right now, um, you you hopefully heard Jonathan Lehman last week talking about the importance of actually coming to church, and I just want to encourage you. Some of you are home for sickness or other reasons, and we get that, and, and uh, we want to make that accommodation. But if not, boy, come back. We, we want to see your faces again, and we want to worship with you, and there is nothing that uh, that can replace being with God's people in person as we gather and worship uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, we are on, according to my count, sermon number 62 in the book of Exodus. So we've been in here since uh, basically October of 2020. Uh, we've taken a few breaks for Christmas. We've, uh, we take it Easter, you know, summers we might take a few weeks off, uh, but here we are. We're coming in for a landing. We will be done. We're going to go chapter 37, then 38, 39, 40, and we'll be done at the end of this month. But for those of you who actually have a question, like think about book of Exodus. If you've been around the whole time, what would you say, how would you answer the question of what is the most important part of the book of Exodus? Uh, maybe you'd say, oh, it's the, you know, it's the 10 plagues and God's actual, you know, reaching out by his outstretched arm to to, uh, to pull uh, Israel without any effort of its own out of, out of Egypt. Maybe, maybe it's the crossing of the Red Sea. Maybe, um, maybe it's the 10 commandments or when he gives the law. I guess if we ask Moses, you know, Moses compiles, puts together the book of Exodus. Moses, what do you feel like is the most important part of the book of Exodus? How would he answer? That? Have you ever thought about this? What's the thing? What's the takeaway? I don't want you to miss this, Moses would say to us if he were here. Now, I want you to hold that question in your head for a moment, and I want to just I wanna, wanna scope out for a second and, and, and help us see something. I, I always have to remind myself when I'm reading Scripture that the writers of Scripture. Uh, had very real limitations. I don't mean intellectual limitations. I mean like limitations in terms of what they could write. Right? They were they were writing on scrolls. Right. So these are scrolls that were of various sizes, parchment, and they didn't just have a you know a drawer full of ink pens that they could keep writing. So there were real physical limitations to writing. So they they had a limited amount of real estate. We could say it that way, right? And they had to they had to say what they wanted to say in this amount of of paper, this parchment, this scr- the, these scrolls scrolls and they, they couldn't go over and, and, and that's all that they could write. So imagine this, imagine, you know, you're deeply, deeply in love with somebody and you want to share the depth of your affection, your love for them, and all you have to write on is a postcard, right? What would you do? You'd be very, very careful about every single word you chose when you're like, man, I got to, I want to make sure you get this. I want to make sure that this is coming across the way I intend, all that stuff. And I'm only going to write down what is most important, Okay, why am I telling you this? Because if you, if you followed us through the book of Exodus, you know that when we got to chapters 25 through 30, uh, we got the instructions for the giving of the temple. Now we've gone a few chapters, now we're in 35 through 40, and we're getting essentially the same material all over again. It's essentially a repeat of chapters 25 through 30. Now that begs the question, why? Why? Like, why would Moses do this? Why, if he has this limited amount of real estate, why would he take that up? Why, why not just say something like, um, and so Moses constructed the, temp, the, 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 the temple according to the, to the word of the Lord? That, that would make more sense, right? But he doesn't. He repeats it all over again. Why? Well, I think the answer to that question is the answer to the question we were asking earlier, what's the most important part of the book of Exodus? It's right here. It's right here. The reason Moses would take up such precious real estate is so that you and I wouldn't miss this. Now, let's all just admit, when we're reading the book of Exodus, this is the part we sort of fly through, right? Okay, yeah, blah, 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 to Let's get to numbers, right? And then go through numbers, right? So we're, we're, we're We're in this place where we feel like this is a lot of irrelevant material. This is a lot of stuff, it's like it's so repetitive, he did this before. But this is the part where Moses would say, no, no, no. No, you've got to get this. Why is this so important? Because this is what Exodus is all about. Right here is the apex. Why is this the apex? Because this is the whole point. Now remember what we've been saying, the whole point of the book of Exodus is what? God wants to dwell with his people and the means for dwelling with his people is what? The tabernacle. So it stands to reason that he's going to say, I'm gonna make sure you get this tabernacle stuff right. The tabernacle is the central feature in the book of Exodus. More real estate is taken up, talking to you about the the temple and and the tabernacle because Moses doesn't want you to miss how important this is. This is absolutely vital. God dwelling with his people. That's the story of Exodus. That's the story of the Bible. Have you ever wondered this? You ever wondered why we have the books of the Bible we have, how it all? Does it all fit together, or is it just a random collection of stories that were sort of gathered? Well, the answer is not, it's not random. There really is a a, a central theme. There is something, there's a thread that holds it all together. And the thread is simply this. God wants to dwell and will dwell with his people. It starts in the Garden of Eden. It will end in the book of Revelation. In fact, let let me give this to you. Here, I'll just, I'll put it down. If you have the app and you wanna copy this so you can put it in the front of your Bible, that's fine. Here's the summary of the story of the Bible. Here's how it all fits together. Okay, God dwelt with humanity in Eden. Okay? So he's there. But when humanity rebelled against God, Adam and Eve, right? God's holy presence became dangerous. Now, man, if I'm near you, I'll incinerate you. So what does he do? But God did not give up on his plan to dwell among his people. He rescued Israel. He met with them at Mount Sinai. We've seen this already. He had the tabernacle built as a plan and promise of his intent to dwell among his people. That's why we're seeing the tabernacle, In time, it was replaced by the temple. The temple actually turns out to be the same proportions, only double the size, okay? So that comes later in the historical books. And that plan to dwell with his people was fulfilled in the coming of Christ as God in flesh dwelt among us. That plan is anticipated in the church. The people is redeemed. This is where God dwells with his people. And that plan will finally be realized in the new creation when the voice from the throne says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. That's where all of scripture is going. This is the story of scripture. This is the story of Exodus. This is the story of the Christian life. This is the story that you're caught up in if you're a believer in Jesus. That what God is doing is saying, I am going to bring a people to myself and I'm going to dwell with them. So much so that the prophet Malachi is going to say there's coming a day when the, the, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Like this is, with, this is going to be the place of God's dwelling. And we will dwell with him. That's, that's the story of scripture. That's what's happening. And that's why this is so vital in the grand scheme of scripture that we see this. What God is trying to do. Now, okay. God wants to dwell with his people. But there's another question. I think if we're reading this objectively, we might now go, okay, well, that's great. So then it, should I be excited about that or terrified? Should I be anticipating that or ambivalent toward it? What, what? How will I know? Well, I've got to have more information. I've got to know more about this God who wants to come and dwell with us. I, I've, I've got to know what are his motives are, what he cares about, what, what's going on with this God. And I want to submit to you, that's what chapter 37 is. This, is. this is, if you will, we go under the tent, we look inside and we see, we might say it this way, we see the internal life of God. We see this is his disposition towards his people. This is what God wants you to know about him. And this is why you should anticipate God dwelling with his people. Um... And and of course, we need that, don't we? We would never know, never know this unless he showed us. We, We think we know what's going on in people's minds. We make judgments all the time, right? We're terrible at this. We judge a book by its cover. We judge people based on what we see in them. We don't really know what the internal motivations are. And certainly we would do that with God unless he told us. And so he tells us. Now this isn't the this isn't an exhaustive list of who God is. Just this nothing so far has been exhaustive. Exodus is sort of showing this these beginnings, but what are the what are the first things God wants us to understand about him, the one who wants to dwell with his people. That's what I want to show you today. Okay? So let's start walking through this. We'll walk through verse 30, chapter 37. So just grab your Bibles, look at your app, and we're gonna, you're gonna follow along as, as we go through this. Okay, the first thing I want you to see, and this may sound odd to say this, but God cares, this God who wants to dwell with his people cares about artistry and beauty. This is amazing to me. So look at, look at verse 37, and right off the bat, you, you, you hear this guy, Bezalel. And it says, Bezalel made the ark. So Bezalel is an artist. I'm gonna show you something in a minute. He takes a personal interest in crafting the inside furnishings of the tabernacle. Who is he? Go back, I think Stephen preached on this several weeks ago. Go back to chapter 31. And what does it tell us about Bezalel? It says the Lord said in, in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, see I have called by name Bezalel the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood to work in every craft. This is somebody called, has called Bezalel the, uh, the, 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 the Leonardo da Vinci or the Michelangelo of Israel. He was a genius, he was an artist, he was a craftsman, he was somebody who had honed his crafts surely year after year after year that God decides I'm going to use this guy. Now look, I think we fall into two ditches when it comes to artistry and beauty, right? I, I think I think where there's the the ditch that would say, man, it's it's everything, and and uh, and and boy, it, it it better be up to some kind of high standard that very few people can achieve. And you know, I mean, look, Gracie and I were just in Europe, and and it's an awesome thing to walk into some of these European. In, um, in you know, uh, cathedrals, right? Uh, to see these things, are, they're, they're, they're awesome. I don't know how else to describe it, right? You, you look up and you see the stained glass windows and you see the high vaulted ceilings and you hear voices echoing. We actually sat in in a service and heard these chants going on. It's, a, it's an incredible, incredible experience, right? Now some of us think, but that's all that God wants. God just, he, he only accepts that kind of beauty and artistry and that's so unattainable. And look, here, here's what I think. I think God, yes, but it but I, 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 I loves that. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's artistic. It's, it takes a level of craftsmanship that we may not ever see again. Um, but, but like any parent, we love the kids who have grown and we love to see how they mature and grow and can do great things. But we also love the little child who, who uses crayons to make stick figures and we put those on our, on our, on our refrigerator, right? We really love that. So, so there's this side that would say it's everything and man, you better be perfect and all that. But there's the other side that I think we're more today that says it's nothing. doesn't matter. None of this matters, right? I think, I think we're, you know, it's, 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 it's too much. And here I think we, we get this sense that God, God goes, no, it's, it's not too much. Like, like I, I love this stuff. I, I love, like I imagine Look, we don't have one of these, not, not one of these uh, 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 furnishings inside the temple have been discovered by an archeologist. Right? They're, they're, they're nowhere to be found. Um, and if they were, they would be behind bulletproof glass at the Louvre or Smithsonian or somewhere, right? Nobody would be able to touch these things and we would probably marvel at the artistry. But, but certainly the Lord knew that would happen and so do you notice in all of these, all of the descriptions, he could have just said, so he made the ark and he made the lampstand and he made the table and he made you know the incense altar. He didn't. He goes into all this detail. He he carved this and there's flowers and there's there's gold overlay and there's this trimming and there's this lid and there's all these things that take the work of a real artist whose craft has been honed over decades, perhaps. Listen, let me just say this. If you're an artist, keep writing, keep painting, keep filming, keep acting, keep recording, keep sculpting, right? Who knows, but that an artist filled with the spirit like Bezalel, what God would do with that. I love that. Here's Bezalel taking a personal, could have farmed it out, nope. We want the best Leonardo da Vinci Vinci, Michelangelo to be the one who does these furnishings inside. God, this God who wants to dwell with his people cares about things like that. That's the first thing. Second thing is, though, that that God meets the needs of his people. Now, where do I find that in chapter 37? Well, I find it in the ark. And let me say, this is where I'm gonna, I'm just gonna point out something very briefly. The ark is a box and you're going to find out as you, as you continue through Exodus and into, throughout the Pentateuch, you're going to find out that what Israel did was they were commanded by God to put three things inside of that box, this Ark of the Covenant. They were to put manna, they were to put um, uh, Aaron's rod that, was, that, that budded, and then they're going to put the law, okay? Now, I don't have time. We could talk about each of those in turn. Let me just talk about the manna. What they did is they took some of the manna that God had rained from heaven, they put it in a golden jar, they put that golden jar inside and miraculously, this miracle bread from heaven was actually preserved over the generations. Now why? Why? Why of all the things they could have put in, why, do they, why does God say, I want you to put in this, this miracle bread? I want you to put in it. Because God wants to make it plain that he, he wants this symbol that God provides. He is a faithful provider who provides for the physical needs of his people. I love this. God provides for the physical needs of his people. They're real needs, right? This is not just spiritual needs. Yes, maybe those are the more important ones, but God cares about this and he comes and this is the God who wants to dwell with his people, the one who really cares about the physical needs that you have. Now, do you feel that? Do you, Christian, especially if you're here today and you're a Christian, do you look around and see all the ways that God provides for your physical needs? I think that's really, I think we've become so numb to that in a world of Costco and Sam's and hospitals and pharmaceuticals and vaccines and all the things we have, right? How many of you, have walked into Costco and just fallen on your knees and say, God, thank you, right? None of us. (laughs) We're so used to the daily provision of God that we become numb to it. And we look around. I mean, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the hand of God. I, I imagine almost everybody in this room can say, my needs have been provided for. I'm fed this morning. I have a roof over my head. I, I, I slept a relatively good night's rest. I, I have clothes that I'm wearing and I can go home and actually change into more. There's gas in my car. I have a car. Like over and over and over again, we can see this play out, but how do we, do we stop and just go, I mean, here's God saying, man, I wanna set this right in front of you. I wanna put it in the most sacred spot of everything. God is a faithful, faithful provider. And you know what? Sometimes God allows hardship into our life. And I think sometimes he does that so that we will cry out to him, realizing God, unless you do this, I can't be helped. And then he'll help you. So that you'll go, you did it. You're the provider. This is, this is the God. The God who wants to dwell with his people is a God who provides for their real needs. Now let's keep going though. But this God is also the God. He's a, he's a merciful Lord of the universe. Now where am I seeing this? Go to, go to verses one through nine. In fact, this is now talking to us about the ark. But notice this, and he, he says he, he makes this ark and the ark is just a box, okay? And inside's gonna be the box. And what's most important about the box is not the box itself, it's what goes on top of the box. There's a lid. And that lid has two cherubim, and you've probably seen, you maybe even have pictures in your Bible, an artist's rendering of what that might have looked like, right? And there's these two cherubim with wings outstretched toward one another. Why cherubim? Because the cherubim are the guardians; they they keep the presence of God, if you will. They guard the presence. Not just anybody can come in. And they they fly and they say, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So that when you get to Psalm verse eighty and uh, chapter eighty and verse one, it's it's written. To To God, who the writer says sits enthroned between the cherubim. In other words, what we have in the ark is a, if you will, a tiny little representation of the throne of God. Here's the ruler of the universe, if you will, now here represented, here's his throne. This is why, by the way, you're going to see Israel pick up that ark and they're going to walk it out into battles. Our God is with us. His throne is here. He rules, he reigns. And so this awesome God of Isaiah chapter six, you know, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord high and lifted up. This God is not just the ruler and the reigner over the universe, right? This is, he is, he is merciful. In fact, look at look at verse six. He calls this, this thing, that, this lid that goes on top, he calls it a mercy seat. He says it again in verse eight, he, uh, seven. He says it again in verse eight. He says it again in verse nine. Mercy seat, mercy seat, mercy seat. Some of your translations call it an atonement cover. What's happening? This is like this, this, this awesome God, this, this God who, who sits enthroned between the cherubim, this, this one who has guardian, if you will, angels, not guarding him, but guarding people from him. This God is a merciful God. He's a God who wants to show mercy. And what's gonna happen is the priest is gonna throw blood on that and there's gonna be a sacrifice so that there can be mercy given. There can be forgiveness through the spilt blood of a sacrifice. Man, if if this weren't true, we we would be terrified that God would come to dwell with us. But this is the God. This God who comes to dwell with his people is the merciful Lord of the universe. Now let's keep going because then we get down to the description of the, the table in verses 10 through 16 and what do we find out there? That this God who wants to dwell with us is a God who wants to fellowship with his people, fellowship at a table with his people. I don't know if you noticed this but, but like the, 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 table, the table is a, 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 what, what it is to us, right? Who sits at my table? It's people I want to fellowship with, right? We, we gather around and we, we put food out and we eat together and it's a sign of fellowship. This is always what's happening in scripture. This is not an altar for bread. Now they're gonna put bread on it. And they're gonna do symbolic things. But, but notice this. Like, he doesn't just make the table. Look at verse 16. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table. It's plates and dishes. Uh, and it's bowls and flagons. I mean, this is, a you know, you go register for a wedding, right? And you you you're like, I, I, need a, I need a place setting, right? So you, you buy a place setting and it has, it has, a, a, you know, the big plate and the salad plate and the bowl and the cup, that's exactly what's happening here. He's setting it for fellowship. He's setting it for a meal. And the bread's gonna go there. And the incense, which we'll look at in a bit, is the is we might say, we might say is the conversation. They're fellowshipping. This is the God, the God who thundered from the mountain, the God who they couldn't even look up from seeing his feet when they met with him and ate with him on the mountain, the God who, when he appeared, there was thunder and lightning and earthquakes and fire and smoke and cloud. This God wants to come in peace and eat with you. That's amazing. The inner life of God that we're learning here is there is a, there is a God who wants to eat at a table. So, so look, by the way, what do we do at the end of every service? We take juice and bread, right? And I know it's not that awesome, but bear with me, right? So we, we take those. What are we doing? We're reminding ourselves this God Wants to belly up to the table with us and fellowship. How? Through the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Right? We're, we're, we're looking forward. Revelation is going to talk to us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, see, God dwelling isn't just dwelling at a distance. This is like, man, I want to I want to close the gap and I want to be right at the table with you. This is a God who wants to be with his people, is a God who wants to fellowship with his people keep going you get to the lampstand and what do we learn there we learn this is a god who gives us light to see in the darkness right remember where we are we're 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 um we're inside of the tabernacle there are there brian talked about it a few there are curtains thick curtains they're they're woven there's animal skins that go over the top it's dark in there so practically, yes, they need light, but there's something more going on there, right? Light is a metaphor in Scripture. It's a letter, metaphor for revelation. It's a metaphor for exposing things. It, it brings clarity. There's all these things we can say about light. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. He's, he's saying this is, this is the, 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 the light that we need to walk. So we're not walking around and, you know, flipping switches and trying to figure out. He's saying, man, I'm going to give you the light. I'm going to be the light that you need. But it's not just light, it's life. In fact, look at all the details under the lampstands. There's these calyxes, and he talks about blossoms and flowers and all of these different intricacies that point to nature. So you saw this, you know, even in the curtains and things that were made, there were all these things woven into it. Remember, remember what, what the, the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life. And, and here, if you will, that, that tree has been renewed in the lampstand. Let, let me just make an observation for you here. Right, this temple imagery, tabernacle imagery, as I pointed out in the beginning, runs all through Scripture. But it starts off in the Garden of Eden. So if, if, you, if you listen to God creating the heavens and the earth, day one, two, three, you know, a Jewish person would have heard that and gone, oh, He's making a tabernacle. He, the, 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 he's, he's, he's describing what we would understand to be a tabernacle being built. They sin, right? God's presence becomes dangerous. They're, they're ejected from that. But God's like, I still want to be with my people. So I'm going to build a tabernacle. Then I build the temple, right? Now my church represents that. And now we're gonna go to heaven. Now here's what's interesting. We get to heaven. When you, when you, you, you listen to the, the book of Revelation describe, describing what that's gonna be like, it describes it as a rectangle. Actually like a box. What's happening there? I don't think we're supposed to take literally it'll be this big. I think the idea there is the tabernacle has blown up if you will and it's the whole world. That the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We are now walking in the tabernacle, and we are walking in the light of God, and we're walking in the life. Right there is no life apart from light, and and all of these things going together. Where God's saying, "This is what I'm doing." Man, the God who wants to live with you, the God who wants to be in your presence and wants you to be in His presence is a God who illuminates and reveals and helps and gives you eyes to see, and He's a God of life who wants to who wants to give. Just continue. He's this, He's just like life-giving. He can't help it. He creates and recreates. The church is a place of of ever-abounding life. Heaven will be a place of ever-abounding life. All of that is what's being pointed to. There's no reason we had to have flowers and almond blossoms in that unless what we're supposed to see is that that light brings life. God gives light to see in the darkness. But then there's one more. There's the altar of incense. And this is where I think what we're supposed to see about this God who wants to dwell with us is a God who hears and answers prayer, right? So the priest would come in and the, there would be the altar. And the altar, by the way, would be sitting before the curtain that separated uh, the holy place from the most holy place. That is where the ark was. So the ark, there would, it would have gone the ark, the altar of incense, and the two of them would be separated by a curtain. Only the high priest could go in there once a year. But in the meantime, morning and evening, he would set this perfume, this incense, and it would burn, and it says it would, it would fill, basically fill the room with an aroma, and it says it was a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, what is that? Well, the Bible tells us. Psalm 141, David says, may my, may my prayer be set before you, altar, like incense, Revelation 8:3, we're told that the incense re- represents the prayers of all the saints. Do you understand that this is how God views the prayers of his people? He, he views it as it's sweet. I love it. It's a smell I can't get over. I'm, I'm, I love to hear your prayers. Now now look at this. I, I want you to see something because these are not laid out. He didn't just go, oh, let me talk about the ark and now let me talk about the table and then the lampstand. These are laid out in an order that one must follow the other. In fact, one can't come unless you've had what comes before it, right? Unless the sacrifice has been made where the presence of God will come, then I can't get to the fellowship of the table. And, and, and I, don't know, I don't know the light of God's glory in the life of that and the life of the meal. I maybe could say without without that. That's the lampstand, and then I can't have the conversation that I want to have with God, and I can't have that sort of intimacy of fellowship without all of those things before it. And now I offer up my my conversation, my prayer to God. All of these things are linked together. Everything that we're supposed to see how God God does all these things. This is the God that wants to dwell with His people. And here we have the God who hears and answers prayer. Now, let me, let me point out something that, that maybe be so obvious that we'll, we'll miss the forest for the trees. Every piece of furniture I just described to you goes where? <laughs> Think about this. It goes inside the tent, right? And the tent covers it. So very few people will actually see these things, right? The high priest, Aaron and his sons, will get to go in and actually see them. If they're gonna travel, they're all covered. They're sort of packed down, covered over, put up on poles, or maybe that's the ark, I don't know, but that's this, that's that, you know. It is a, it is a sacred process and very few people actually get to see it. It's shielded from view. They have no ability, so so how can they know what's going on in the tent, right? Aaron, I'm sure over the centuries or you know the 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 decades and generations, as 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 Israel sort of got away from this time, no doubt they had young people saying, now what's in the temple and what's going on in there? And well, there's this ark. Well, what's the ark about? Oh, it's about the presence of God, and it's about what's the table. It's about fellowship, and what's this and what's that? And they had to they had to get these explanations. In other words, all of this all of this is veiled. So here's God saying, I want to be with my people, but all this glory is veiled from them. Until John chapter one. Go over there with me. Now I want you to keep Exodus 37 in the back of your mind as I read this to you. God's glory veiled in the tabernacle, in the temple. We can't actually see it. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now skip all the way down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. I want to suggest to you that what's happening here when John writes that is to help us see inside the tent. But I can't see until Jesus comes. The te- temple, the, the tabernacle, they're placeholders. Paul's gonna say these are shadows of what's to come. The substance is found in Christ. So Christ comes and what do we learn? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you know this, that word dwelt is literally the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus Christ came and tabernacled. He is the tabernacle. He is the revelation of God. And he's woven into, pounded into, carved into every part of the furnishings of the tabernacle in the temple. Right? He is the true and better ark who offers himself as a sacrifice. And so we can be forgiven. We'll never, he's the true and better bread of life. We never hunger again. He's the true and better table of fellowship. He calls us friends. He promises if anyone hears my voice, then I'm gonna, and, you know, if I, if I behold, I knock at, stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears me, then, then I'll come and they'll open the door. I'll come in and I'll eat with them and they with me. There's real fellowship, but he goes beyond that. Like he, 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 he gives us the right to be called children of God, John's gonna tell us. I don't sit at the table now as just a friend. I sit as family. He's the giver of life. He's the light. He is the life. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He's the altar of incense, He's the one through whom we pray and God hears. In fact, Hebrews chapter seven says he, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Do you want God to hear your prayers? You go through Jesus. Jesus is the one. He he prays because he sacrificed on our behalf. No wonder now the Bible's going to say, Hebrews 4, that we boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. I'm not shielded. I'm I'm not cordoned off from the presence of God, right? The veil gets torn when Jesus dies. All those things that represent that now I can come into the presence of God through the death of Jesus. No one could see the glory inside, it would be described to them. Now, John says, we've seen him. This one who tabernacled, we've seen him. We've seen the glory of God revealed in him. See, if we ask the question, what is God like? John says, nobody's ever seen him. He has made him known. You know that word made him known Literally, it's a word that we in English, we've borrowed this Greek word and turned it into an English word. And it's where we get our word exegesis or exegete. It means to draw meaning out of. How can I actually know some? When we preach, we want to, we want to exegete the scriptures. That is, here's what it says. Let us help you understand the meaning. This is what's saying. Jesus came and preached the best message about God. He lived so that when we say, what's God like? He makes him known. What's God like? He's exactly like Jesus. The God who wants to dwell with you. The God who wants to dwell with Foothill Church and His worldwide church. The God who, who will dwell with His people in the coming kingdom. The God of the Exodus. This God, if I want to know what He's like, He's just like Jesus. Because Jesus is God. Let's pray. Father, oh, we love you. And I thank you so much. I thank you for your word and, and um, just the ways that it speaks and preaches to us, Lord. And I, oh God, I, I thank, you. thank you. I thank you that in Jesus we see all of these things. Lord, we have, we have just scratched the surface of who you are and who Christ is. But right here in the beginning, right at the, the birth of, your, of this nation, the birth of your people, we see a gracious, loving, providing, fellowshipping God. And I praise you for that, Lord. May that, may that be what we carry with us as your, as your people, that because of Jesus Christ, we can have fellowship with this God that isn't terrifying because of Christ. We don't face your wrath anymore if we're under the blood of Christ. And so we praise you for that. And God, I pray for my friends here today who who perhaps have never put their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, they, they're looking to their own merits. They're they're trying to know you on their own. But God, here we had John tell us nobody's ever seen you until Jesus Christ came. Lord, may, may they know you because they know Jesus Christ. And so Father, I pray today would be a day when you'd awaken faith in and cause repentance and bring people to a place where they would turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.